everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I am the pastor here at LOPC. And I want to welcome you if you are in person or on the live stream. We are absolutely thrilled you've chosen to worship with us this morning. And it is certainly our heart's desire, our heart's prayer, that this is a time of rich celebration of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we come together to gather to extol him, to sing his praises, to glory in Christ Jesus. If you are a first-time visitor with us in person this morning, we welcome you. We're thrilled you're here with us. Uh, we hope that you were greeted as you came in and somebody brought you to our welcome center where you were offered a bag of good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff in that bag. It allows you to get to know us. We want to get to know you as well. And so hopefully you were offered that. If not, you can head out after the service and be sure to get something. We'd like to ask all of you to sign the friendship pads. That means if you're at the end of an aisle, you get it started. You sign it in, you pass it down to your neighbor, it comes back to you, and this is whether you're visiting or a longtime member, it just allows us to know if you are here or not. If you want to pull out your bulletins, I want to make several different announcements. Some of them are kind of, as we're approaching, hard to believe this is the end of October. Here we are, the last Sunday of October. November 1st is Tuesday. We are moving forward. The holidays will be upon us like that. And so we have a whole bunch of what I call save the dates. Mark your calendars for different things. So as I go through this, the first one is on December 2nd and 3rd. That's a Friday evening and a Saturday during the day. That will be our next inquirer's class. And so if you're interested in that, I believe there's an insert in your bulletin. You can sign up or you can call the office. And so that's still a little ways away, but don't wait too long in terms of that. And then as we look through December, the ladies' Advent tea will be on Tuesday evening, December 6th at 6.30 p.m. And then the Christmas cantata. Do you think the choir is good on Sunday morning? Wait till you hear the songs of the season belted out in worship of the Lord on Sunday, December the 18th at 6 p.m. You want to come out, you want to invite at least seven of your closest friends. We want to fill this place and be able to worship and enjoy fellowship on that particular evening. And then just to note, our annual Christmas Eve service of lessons and carols. Good news, it's going to happen on Christmas Eve, which is still the same this year, December 24th, a Saturday evening at 5 o'clock. Another wonderful opportunity for outreach in our community for you to bring friends and whatnot. A couple of thoughts in terms of LOPC 2.0. We were kind of in our last couple of weeks of having group meetings. One of the things we did to try to make it easier, hopefully if you have pledge cards, if not, we have set up a table out before the missions map, and there will be a deacon there after the service as well. You can either pick up a pledge card, you could drop it off in a very secure box, either this Sunday or next Sunday, because... In two weeks from today, Sunday, November 13th, we're calling that Celebration Sunday. What we want to do is we want to be able to announce what the Lord has provided through your generosity, through our faith-raising enterprise. We want to be able to share that. And then we want to celebrate with a wonderful catered lunch down in the pavilion. Now, we hope the weather will be a little nicer than today. 
That would sure be good. If not, wear a sweater. Sweaters are in style, uh, so you can, you can do that. But we want to do that out in the pavilion, and that will be after the service on Sunday, November the 13th. And so now we want to, we've been doing this occasionally, kind of giving some testimony, sharing a little bit about people's experiences with LOPC 2.0. And I've asked this morning, where are they sitting? There they are. Alan, Emma, Anderson, if they would come up and share a little bit. Alan, Emma, I have to guess your height relative to mine. Hopefully, I have this close. Okay, good morning. In the fall of 1995, Emma and I moved to the Lake area. We moved from East Cobb, uh, where we were founding members of the first spin-off or church plant, if you want to put it that way, of Perimeter Church. It was called Perimeter Northwest. So we helped plant that church. Well, we moved here. We started looking for PCA church. We did not find any. So every Sunday we would visit a church in the area looking for a church home where God would have us be. It turns out that we eventually found out that there was a a PCA church in Milledgeville called Covenant. So we said, well, let's go there next Sunday to continue our looking around. Uh, After the service, the pastor, John Kinzer, said, could you stick around for a minute? I would like to talk to you about something. So everybody left, and we were there, and John said, I think God, no, he didn't say I think. He said, God is leading me to plant a church in the lake area. And I want you to pray about this. And so we got in the car and we left. And after about 15 minutes of silence, Emma said, are you going to say something? (laughs) And I said, "Uh, yeah, we're not going back there. (laughs) He wants us to plant a church. And we already did that in East Cobb. So we, we continued to visit other churches for a couple, three weeks. And we got up one morning. She said, well, where are we going this week? And I said, well, we're going back to, to Covenant. And he, she said, you know what that means, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. We're going we're gonna to come alongside. I've been praying about it. God wouldn't give me any peace about it. So we're going to come alongside him and see if it's God's will to plant a church at Lake Oconee. So we committed, and in the PCA, church planting is a very organized procedure, and it starts with the Presbytery, and we're part of Central Georgia Presbytery, and then eventually comes under the umbrella of Mission to North America. And our church planter becomes a missionary church planter. And so Reverend John Kinzer, his lovely wife Pat, and their three children... Uh, went through the several months process of planting a church in the Lake Oconee area. And over those six months, the four of us continued to meet together and pray and plan. Because to move forward, you need a plan and you need a vision. And uh, John 
visited churches both in Georgia, Florida, and Alabama, raising support through their mission teams to make it possible for us to plant a church at Lake Oconee. In April of 96, at that time, we were official and we began to, by word of mouth, approach other couples about joining us. And when we had three other couples, we began to meet regularly in our home. More people came. And eventually, over the years, we were in five temporary locations, mostly storefronts, until God provided this wonderful property and our beautiful church building. Al and I love this congregation. You have meant so much to us over the years. You've come along beside us in both happy times and really dark times to hold us. We are very excited to look back and to see the faithfulness over the years of where God has brought us as a congregation with all of our wonderful ministries. And we are both very excited to look forward now that we are moving ahead with this LOPC 2.0 to see what exciting things God has for us in the future. Thank you. Alan, Emma, thank you. One of the things that, a couple takeaways I take. One, it's always dangerous, dangerous when the pastor says, I want to speak to you after the service. <laughs> Less, lessons of history. And then, isn't it exciting that the pastor also says to you, we are all still missionaries to Lake Oconee. We're learning the culture, we're learning the area, and it's our responsibility to take the wonderful hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of Lake Oconee. What an adventurous, exciting vocation and purpose God has given us. And this God has called us into his very presence to worship him this morning. As we hear the prelude on this day that we celebrate Reformation Sunday, as we will hear a mighty fortress is our God, we will sing later in the service a mighty fortress is our God, written by Martin Luther. Let's worship this great God that we love and serve.
call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 117, verses 1 to 2. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol Him, all you peoples. For great is His love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Lord, You are a mighty fortress, and You are our God. How we praise You for Your great grace, Your steadfast love, Your wonderful mercy, and Your faithfulness. We invoke Your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to dwell amongst us, to join us as we praise You and worship You this morning. Help us to remember Your truth. Help Your truth to burn deeply into our hearts. And Father, may we sing Your praises through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise, All Creatures of Our God and King.
as we have just sung of praising our Savior, of being confronted with His holiness and His glory, we now see where we fall short. We see our own sinfulness. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Notice he's not just praying about his behaviors or actions. Where does it start from? What's, where's the root of sin? It lies in our heart. He says, try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In many ways, that sounds like a very daring prayer to come before the Lord and say, search me and know those hidden motives down there. The reasons I look at other people with contempt. The reasons I can tend to be judgmental. The reasons I do fill in the blank, whatever it might be. But the psalmist knows that healing must come from within, and he says, search me, O God. And he could only pray that way if he was assured of God's grace. See, knowing that we are forgiven in Christ ought to free us to be able to be brutally honest with ourselves, to be able to say, yes, I am that sinful, and I need the grace of God. That's why Paul in Philippians 3, when he says, we are the true circumcision, we are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, we are the ones who glory in Christ Jesus, we get all that, and then he says, and we are the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. Take a few moments and engage with the Lord in a time of personal confession of sin, where you repent of putting any confidence in your own flesh, and you come clean before the Lord. Then in a few moments, I will lead us in, and we will pray this corporate confession of sin. Let us pray. Let us pray together. Eternal God, we confess that often we have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. We have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And friends, the assurance of pardon. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isn't that absolutely amazing? Obviously, this doesn't mean God has a memory lapse. What this means is that he has completely dealt with our sins, 
on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he can say, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. It brings glory to me because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so as the fact that our sins have been dealt with, he can look at us and say, my favor is upon you. My smile is upon you. I will not remember your sins. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's continue to worship and praise this God by standing and singing together, How Great is Our God. God invites us to commune to him, with him. The context of the Lord's prayer is the disciples asking Jesus, teach us to pray. 
And Jesus gives them and us this particular prayer. These petitions that begin with the glory of God, who God is as our Father, the hallowing of his name, the longing for his kingdom, the commitment to seeing his will done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the final petitions focus more with the practical affairs of life, our day-to-day living, our need for daily bread, the reality of that we're sinned against, the need to forgive others and receive forgiveness, to be led not into temptation. Now I wonder, which table, so to speak, of the Lord's Prayer do we typically pay more attention to in our lives? The practical affairs of daily food, shelter, clothing, and relationships, or worship and kingdom. Maybe we need to think about our priorities a little bit. I'm not, obviously, Jesus says pray about both, so we're to do that. But I want us to think about that as we engage with the Lord, as we pray this prayer together. Jesus said, teach us to pray. Where is our heart? So let's pray together the Lord's Prayer, and then I'll lead us in a time of prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, I thank you that Jesus has given us this prayer as kind of a centerpiece of what living in the kingdom is all about, what life in the kingdom is all about. And it begins with our relationship with you, that you are our father, not just my father or a person's father, but you're our father, that we are together corporately as a body, as a people, as a community, we belong to you and we therefore belong to one another. And so we thank you that we belong to each other and that you sovereignly reign from heaven. It's your control center where you have dominion and domain and that you are intimately involved. You're a personal God. You're our Father who's holy but you're personally involved. You don't stay distant. You're not far off. You are involved in the intimate details of our lives. You see us. You know us. You love us. You are in heaven, ruling and reigning over all things. The world is not chaotic. It is under your control, no matter how it appears to us. There's a reason Paul wrote, we live by faith, not by sight. By sight, it might look totally chaotic, but it is completely under your sovereign will and control. And so, Father, may our hearts seek to hallow your name, to make it unique, holy, set apart. May in everything we do, we seek the fame of your holy name, the renown of who you are. And, Lord, when we look at the brokenness of the world, brokenness of our own lives and the brokenness of those around us, we cry out, thy kingdom come. We know that even though there's a present aspect to the kingdom, 
we experience some of its blessings now, there is still so much more yet to come. And so we say, come Lord Jesus, put the world to rights. Make us what we were designed to be. Bring healing, complete, consummate healing into our lives and into the world. And may we practice now doing your will on earth as it is in heaven. And yes, as we shift to the day-to-day affairs of our life, we do pray for our daily bread for ourselves and for others. We pray not just for us, but we pray for others, that you feed the hungry, that those who don't have, that you would generously give and provide for them, that we would recognize that we are totally reliant and dependent upon you. We would repent of our self-reliant when we say, give us this day our daily bread. That means we don't produce our bread on our own. We receive it as a gift. Help us to remember that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing and to put no confidence in the flesh. And Lord, we need to seek forgiveness always. We have violated your law, we have sinned against your love, and we've hurt other people. Help us to own our sinfulness, to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Lord, lead us not into temptation. We recognize that the desires within us, the passions of our flesh, are evil. And so we pray against being led into temptation and ask that we would be delivered and experience deliverance that we would live for you. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, and may we live for your glory in all things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.
funny, I'm always struck how, except for a couple instances, these first rows always seem empty. Are you afraid as I wander around when I preach, I'm going to get too excited and come down? You know, I promise to stay in my lane a little bit and stay, and stay up here. I'm just observation. <laughs> we are continuing our series looking at why the church, why does Jesus have this community, this body, this organization, this institution called the church. Why does the church still exist on the earth today to bear witness to his ruling and reigning what we can say is the kingdom of God? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is all about life in the kingdom of God. It is describing life in the kingdom. It's not so much about how to get in. He's speaking to his disciples from a mountain. So picture he's a new Moses bringing a new rule, a new law, but a totally different law. And he's describing, he's not prescribing how to get into the kingdom. He's saying, here's what my kingdom church, my kingdom followers, my kingdom disciples look like. Here is what makes them happy. Here's what brings them blessing. Here's how I have designed them. And so this morning, we are looking at a passage of Scripture. If you have Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 20, about the nature of life in the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom of God. And in a sense, life in the kingdom of God is also about what it means to be the church in the world. What does our lives, what do our lives look like in the world in which we live? We are to be called and we are to be a contrast society, something different. We are to give an alternative to what the world says, the world's values, the world's ways, the world's patterns. We ought to be different. That doesn't mean just weird, but we ought to offer an alternative to the world. So let's look at this scripture, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive into it. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter 
the kingdom of heaven. Friends, let's pray. Lord, as you speak to us through your word, please send Holy Spirit to burn the truth of your word into our hearts, to search our hearts, to show us where we both as individuals and as a people, as a congregation, need to apply it. We recognize that your word is breathed out, is inspired by you, is living and active, and is useful, which means it has inherently application. That it makes the person, the man or the woman of God complete, equipping us for every good work. And so I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would equip us now in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this place in the Lord of the Rings where the king is coming into the city. You knew I had to give you a Lord of the Rings illustration once in a while. The king is coming into the city. So he's coming physically present in the city, but he's incognito. So nobody recognizes him. Nobody knows whether he's the true king or not. And so one of the old, wise women says, ah, but the hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. So she says, let's take him into the house of healing and see if he can heal some people. Think about that line that Tolkien says, the hands of the king are healing hands. And look at what the text says before us today. From the throne comes newness. You know, the number one way God is revealed to us in the Bible is as a king. When we say our father, he is our father king. When we refer to him as a shepherd, he's a shepherd king. When he's a divine warrior, he's our warrior king who fights our battles. But he is a king. And from the throne comes healing and comes newness. That's why our vision statement for LOPC 2.0 is that we long, we yearn, we aspire to be used by God to bring renewal, healing, and peace to Lake Oconee and the nations to the glory of God. That's why one of our values is that we want to be kingdom-centered and kingdom-focused because that's where we live. We live in the kingdom of God. And to give it an application to the degree that you come under the throne. That means to the degree that any right now you bring your heart or you bring anything under the lordship of Christ. So to the degree that bring, you bring your life, to the degree that you bring a marriage, to the degree that you bring a relationship, to the degree that you bring a friendship, to the degree that you bring a business under the lordship of Christ, there will be healing, there will be newness, because that's God's design. And it starts now. Instead of disintegration, there'll be integration. It begins now, but it won't be brought to completion until later. To those who first heard Jesus teach this teaching on the nature of the kingdom, the meaning that they had was, the future is now. The future has come into the presence in the person of Jesus Christ. The reign of God, which you expected to come at the end of the age and the close of history, has arrived in the here and now. And you were invited to experience its reality. You were invited to experience its transformation. You were invited to experience its life-changing power. 
Isaac Walton wrote of Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan. He says, of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. That's amazing. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Friends, every single one of us needs to experience the reality of the kingdom of God. Heaven in us before we actually go to heaven. And Jesus teaches us three things in this passage. We need to learn and know three things about living in the kingdom of God. We need to learn that there's kingdom conflict. We need to learn that there's kingdom impact. And we need to learn that there's kingdom authority. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. And, and doesn't it come off with a great start here? Now, of course, this is the end of the Beatitudes. Those statements of blessings where he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and those, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice and for righteousness. And he gets to the end of these Beatitudes, and he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And you're like, wow, this is an up passage, Jeff. Thanks. This is blessed when you're, you're blessed when you're hated like this. And then Jesus goes on to say, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, I can't help but think, we think we live in a safe world, but we don't. We're spoiled in America because we've had quite a bit of safety in our time, but the world is dangerous today, and we cannot pull back. The world is definitely dangerous. One of my mentors, Jack Miller, he used to like to say, and Jack would stand up before a crowd. He was the founder of World Harvest Mission, a former both OPC and PCA pastor. And he would talk about conflict in the world. And this was like 30, 40 years ago. And he would sit there and say, to all you Christians out here, he would say, you have this expectation that everybody's going to turn towards you and they're going to be friendly towards you and they're going to like you and they're going to smile at you and they're going to love you and they're going to speak well of you. And then he would look at them and he said, what kind of Christian crack are you smoking? Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Now, notice it says, it says falsely, on my account. This is not being offensive because we're offensive. This is be, being offensive because of our witness for Jesus Christ. Falsely on my account. This is because we love other people that the world calls loveless. We accept other people that the world doesn't accept. And we don't accept others that the world does accept. Because we are, Tim Keller calls the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, the right side up kingdom versus the upside down kingdom. He says each kingdom has three things. Every kingdom has a pattern of values a power to implement those values, and a product, the effect of those values. He says in the old right-side-up kingdom, the pattern is things like power, success, 
comfort, recognition, celebrity. Whereas the upside down kingdom are things like weakness, mourning, sacrifice, exclusion. Jesus is turning the tables on the values of the world. See, they're so right side up. Why? Because they make such sense to us. And they're upside down. What kind of person says you're blessed when others hate you and insult you and persecute you because of me? A British psychiatrist put it this way. He said, the spirit that so permeates Christianity is, in my opinion, masochism. He said, a much stronger expression of masochism is to be found, or the strongest expression of masochism is to be found in Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, read the Sermon on the Mount, and it blesses the poor, blesses the meek, blesses the persecuted. It says, do good to them who hate you. Forgive those who trespass against you. Compare this to a quote by a commentator by the name of Michael Wilcock on the values of the upside-down kingdom. And he says, in the life of God's people, it will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. Friends, this is what it means to be a contrast society. That means we are to offer a contrast, not just by our behavior, but by what we esteem, what we call worthwhile, what we value. And it is these questions that Jesus is turning his attention to in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says there will be conflict, but he says, notice this, there will also be impact. And he moves on to use two pictures drawn from the everyday world of his time to illustrate what it means to be a Christian in the world. Look with me at verse 13. And in verse 13 he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I want you to notice the language here. It says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It doesn't say become this. The mood of the verb is indicative. This is a statement of fact. L-O-P-C, you are the salt of the earth in Lake Oconee. You don't have to become something. You are the light of the world here in Lake Oconee. Why? Because you're united to Jesus Christ. Remember I said this is descriptive of life in the kingdom. This is not how to get in the kingdom. If you are in Christ, you are, and the you, by the way, is second person plural, which means he's speaking to us as a church. He's speaking to his whole church. But this means we as a church bear corporate witness to the reality of the rule and the reign, the glory and the kingship of Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean? What are the functions of salt and light that we are? Because then the application is, let's act consistently with who we are. So what does salt do and what does light do? 
Well, the first of all, remember in ancient times there was no refrigeration. Salt was a vital preservative. It was used to preserve meat to keep it from spoiling. That means one of our functions in the community, in society, is to have a preserving impact upon a society that if left to itself will rot and deteriorate. Without the influence of the gospel, society will suffer such moral decay and become putrid, unfit for the consumption of good men and women. Now let's apply this. That means if we look out at the world and we see rot and deterioration, do you know what that means? Because we are meant to be the preserving agent in the world. That means don't blame others, look in the mirror. That's why the instruction to the church was, search me, O God, and know my heart. Are we being the preservative that we are? And look at something else. We just talked about it's a preservative for meat. How well does the salt work if you have salt over here and meat over here? Not very well, right? What has to happen? It has to be rubbed into the meat. It has to be in the meat. In the same way, how well is it going to work if we go, here's LOPC over here, and here's the community over here? It's not going to work. We have to be rubbed into the community. That means we have to be very involved into the community. We don't do any good unless we are rubbed into the world. That's the tricky part of being in the world, but not of the world. But you, ha you know how too many Christians act? Well, it's scary to do that. Let's just be out of the world, and then we don't have to be worry about being of the world. We're not going to be that preserving agent. And think about who it is that God uses in the world. He uses the weak things of this world. An amazing Old Testament example from the book of Genesis is the example of Leah. Do you realize who Leah is? And who she became? Do you realize she became the mother of Jesus? Because she became the seed herself and she gave birth to Judah, the seed. When Jesus uses the illustration of salt from everyday life, he is giving us a very encouraging reminder that it's the insignificant, it's the small, it's the tiny, it's the apparently cheap that can influence their environment out of all proportion to our expectation. He's not saying become great and do extraordinary things. Be ordinary, but in the world. How tiny is salt, but when it's involved, how insignificant and weak was Leah? And yet she became the mother of Jesus through her seed. When it says we are the light of the world by virtue of our union with him, what are the functions of light? Well, it gives sight. It allows us to see. The problem with living in the darkness is the effect it has on one's ability to see clearly and distinguish one object from another. As a result, a person loses direction and becomes disoriented. When it gives sight to see, what does it do? It exposes, it penetrates the darkness. This means one major implication this has for us is that as a people in ministry, we need to have an outward face in everything we do toward the world. This is what we've been saying from the beginning.
the natural implication of who we are and the fundamental nature of the church is we are a called and sent people. We are sent to be a blessing to others. By our very nature, we exist for others. How can we put this into action? What might this look like? I've shared, I think I've shared with you this story. I don't write down every illustration and when I share it, I should, but I don't do that very well. But I'll tell you a story that I heard from a colleague of mine. And he puts it this way. He says, I want you to imagine a woman. And let's say she lived sometime between the second century and the 16th century. So a broad swath of history. And let's say she lived somewhere, generally speaking, in the region of the Mediterranean. Could be as far south as North Africa, as far east as modern Iraq, as far north as northern France, or maybe even England and Scotland and as far west as modern Spain. And he says, I want you to imagine that she's out of some terrible necessity obliged to make her way on a journey across the remoteness of the world. So she leaves whatever shelter she had, whatever shelter is hers. She wraps herself in a cloak or cloth, and she steps out into that dark, lonely, scary, restless world. Can you see her? Can you picture her? And as she stepped onto her path and she bends her long and lonely course towards whatever town or village or city held her hopes, in all likeliness, what did she spend her day scanning the horizon to look for? One thing, a church. A church. See, sometimes these churches were huge cathedrals. They'd rise up in stone. They were filled with light. Sometimes they were small little parishes tucked away and in roads, and some see them, and they're filled with intimacy and warmth. And sometimes they were monasteries tucked behind walls but filled with song. But no matter what kind of church it was, all of them shared a common vocation to be the faithful presence of love in their time. Salt and light. This is why she would look for a church, because of all the things that she could know about the church, the one thing that she would certainly know that most people did know was that the church was a place whose very purpose was to be a light in the darkness, was to be a rest for the restless. Its purpose was to be a presence in all the absences of the world, a faithful presence of love in the midst of the absences of the world. And look at the world with a tender, compassionate heart. Do you not see the absences? The absence of love. The absence of friendship. Loneliness is an absolute epidemic in the world today. The absence of dialogue and civil conversation. The absence of freedom to express doubt, to question, to express skepticism to be known. Do you realize the church, the church is the only place that the Lord has designed for the world to find hope and love and a place to search and to struggle. This is why I love and respect so much Francis Schaeffer's ministry called Labrie. Do you know what Labrie means? Labrie is the French word for shelter. And Labrie was created to be a place where individuals could have the opportunity to see answers 
to, uh, to seek answers to honest questions about God and the significance of human life. Don't you think that describes what it looks like to be salt and light in the world? To give people a safe place, a shelter, where they could wrestle, where they could struggle, where they could faithfully doubt and seek answers to the meaning of God, who he is. Do you think people naturally know who God is? Who's going to show them if the church doesn't show them? And the significance of what it means to be human. There's such a dehumanization in the world today. And if the church doesn't show them, who's going to? We need to be salt and light. And lastly, real briefly, verses 17 to 20, the authority of the kingdom. Pretty interesting, up to this point, Jesus is speaking a sermon, right? And he's talked a lot. He's made it clear what belonging to the kingdom means. He's talked about the values of the kingdom. He's talked about the impact of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom. But I think even though that might be very startling, what he has said, it's pretty interesting. It has to be startling so far to the people who are listening what he hasn't talked about. What he hasn't talked about to a largely Jewish audience is what? Torah, the law. And so now he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest part of a Greek or Hebrew alphabet will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me answer the kind of the last question first. What does he mean, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? If you look at the scribes and Pharisees, they were the gatekeepers of the law, were they not? They were the ones, the law was very important to them. But here's the question, and think about, put on your Bible scholar hats here, friends. Can anyone attain righteousness by keeping the law? The answer is no. So how much righteousness did the scribes and Pharisees have? The answer is zero. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, well, of course, you're tied at zero. The only way for it to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes is if you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have to have a foreign alien righteousness, that which Jesus earned for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. But this does not mean Jesus is overthrowing the law. Entry into the kingdom of heaven is completely a gift of divine grace, totally unmerited. And of course, what's the fear? If you say it's unmerited, what's the fear everybody has? Well, if you take away the law as a means of earning merit, if you take away the law as a means of pleasing, nobody's going to make any effort to keep it. They're going to say, who cares and who does it? Friends, that is not the teaching of Jesus. There is a difference between obeying the law and being under the law. And Jesus says, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you are under grace. 
the reign or dominion of grace, not under the reign or dominion of the law. And in fact, it's the only way you can love the law. See, the paradox is this. If you live under the law, that is you're trying to earn God's favor, God's smile by being a good person through your performance. The paradox is it will produce all kinds of evil in you. Trying to live under the works of the law creates and puts you under a curse. All the works of the flesh, things like pride, lack of self-control, gossip, the only way to grow in your actual obedience is to live under grace. That's the key to holiness. The key to holiness is know that God cannot and will not love you any more or any less than he does right now if you are in Jesus Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are loved as much now when you still have sin and the flesh as you will be a trillion billion years from now when you are completely restored in glory. And that is the only way to be free to look at the law as what it is, an expression of the heart and the will and the agenda and the character of God and say, it can't touch me. It can't condemn me. It can't get me. I'm free to love it. Oh, I messed up again. We'll confess, but I can love it. Only if you're free can you actually love the law and obey God. See, the problem is not the law. The problem is how we relate to the law. If we're trying to make the law our Jesus, it will only produce the works of the flesh. See, it is only the gospel, being under grace, that frees us to actually delight in and love God's law, knowing that we are not condemned by it. We can actually love it. See, think about this. How do we actually learn to delight in the law of God? How do we actually learn to delight in the authority, the law of the Lord? See, if we look at Scripture, seeing God face-to-face, having a real genuine experience of him, didn't always lead to delight. Remember Isaiah in the temple? Isaiah in the temple sees God, sees the law of God, the holiness of God, and what happens? He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. What needs to happen for us to delight in the law of the Lord? You have to see the gospel. There's this place in John chapter 4. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. And he tells her that he can give her some water that would cause her to never thirst again. Of course, she says, I want that water. I'd like to have some. Yes, please. And Jesus says, you're looking at him. I'm that, I'm that water. I'm the living water. How can Jesus offer us that living water that we can feel that love that significant, that secure, and that free. Because think about the cross and what did Jesus experience on the cross? He experienced true thirst. He experienced in its utmost every possible absence we could ever experience. Remember his words from the cross where he says, I thirst? 
course, there's a physical aspect to that, but it's so much more. See, what was happening to him at that point was he was being blown into oblivion because the wrath and the justice and the penalty of God was being absorbed into him that he took the penalty that everyone who looks into the law feels. He became undone. And then he said, it is finished. Jesus took the penalty that we all fear. And so practically speaking, for us to grow in grace, for us to be salt and light, to move in freedom, and to not be so scared we're going to make mistakes, is we have to dig our roots and put our roots down deep into the living water that is Christ. Recognizing he cannot love you any more or any less than he does right now. Meditate on who he is. Meditate on what he's done for you. Drink deeply from him. And we will grow in godly, abundant living, living the kingdom life that God has designed and calls us to live. Father, I pray for us as a church. You have said we are salt and we are light. This is how we live in the world. May we not be so afraid of the world, but may we be a part of the world, in the world but not of the world, and be a faithful presence of love in the absences of the world. May our hearts be moved to see the absences, the loneliness, the friendlessness, the covering over of so many things. How fearful and anxious and scared people really are. Help us to be the people you call us to be. By looking at Jesus, you were the perfect human who was everything we were supposed to be, and you did that for us. So help us to drink deeply of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's close our service. Let's stand together and sing this absolutely awesome hymn of the faith, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
Can you think of a greater blessing that his kingdom is forever and that you possess that forever? Now, friends, open your arms wide and receive the Lord's blessing so that you can be a blessing to the many absences in the world. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.